You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 together. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Jodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together and ask God's help as we begin this morning. Our Father, we have sung to you our worship and our praises and the sentiments of our hearts. And we know that there is nothing that we can say to you that even comes close in importance to what you have to say to us in your word. And it is to that that we turn now and ask and ask earnestly for you to help us to understand. Give us grace to apply your word. Give us grace to listen attentively. And may you be glorified here through this time as you meet with your people in your word. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, I think I have demonstrated once again my profound ability to be far more confusing than clarifying. After last week's sermon concerning the book of life, I had a number of people who came up and asked me questions. And when one person comes up and asks a question, I figure there's probably three or four other people in the congregation who didn't feel quite the liberty to come up and ask a question for clarification for one reason or another. But when five or six or seven or eight come up and ask you similar questions, then I, it kind of helps me to put a to get a pulse of the congregation and realize I probably struck a nerve and need to address something because I was likely more confusing than clarifying in my comments. And here's why that happens. Because in my mind, there's always something that's very crystal clear. And I understand it well, and I understand how I'm going to explain it. And it all seems very good and well in my mind. But then it goes through this blender, as it were, known as my mouth. And it comes out as one big train wreck that lands on the floor. And we in this church euphemistically refer to that as Jim's Sermon. So now I want to take a couple of minutes and just clarify something last week and tell you about the questions that I was asked concerning the book of life. Most of the questions that I was asked had to do with the names that are written in the book and the security of those names written in the book. So, for instance, one person asked, and I think that this question pretty much summarizes all of the other questions. One person asked, from what you said, it sounds to me like there are three groups of people. First, there are those whose names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. 
Second, there are those whose names have been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world whose names are blotted out, removed from the book. And third, there are those whose names have never been written in the book of life, even from the foundation of the world. Is that true? And I realized then how utterly unclear I had been, not because that was a silly question, but because I had left that unclarified. So that's what I want to do. I want to clarify that for you. Let me give you the answer basically that I gave in um, short to a couple of people last week. You read through the Old Testament and you see mentions of this book of life or book of the living in different passages of the Old Testament. Exodus 32, Psalm 69, an imprecatory psalm. And here was a there was a custom on earth of which there is a reality in heaven and the earthly custom is sort of a shadow of a heavenly reality, as it were. The earthly custom was this. In ancient times, before Bible days and in ancient cities, during the writing of the Old Testament, even further back then during the time of Paul and even before that time of Moses, Cities kept a register of all the people alive in the city, and it was a book of the living, and they kept a register of all the people who were in that city, and whenever somebody was born, their name was added to that book, and whenever somebody died, their name was taken out of that book, or whenever somebody committed a crime that stripped them of all the rights and dignity which belonged to citizenship, or of citizenship, their name was blotted out, and they were considered no longer living, and that helped the city the people in the city, the magistrates, know who is alive and who is entitled to all of the rights and privileges of citizenship in the city. That was the earthly custom. That was basically a shadow in, in some ways, not every way, of a reality that exists in heaven. There is a book in heaven referred to as the Lamb's Book of Life or God's Book of Life. Now, some people, when they read passages in the Old Testament, like Moses saying in Exodus 32, Lord, forgive the nation for their iniquity, and if you won't forgive them, then blot my name out of the book. Some people say Moses and other Old Testament writers were just referring to God's book of those who are alive. In other words, he's referring to physical death, not spiritual death. I don't think that that's true. I've looked at every passage that I can find in the Old Testament and the New Testament that mentioned the book of life. And I don't, I don't believe that in the context, any of them refer to just simply a book of people who are alive. I don't believe that that's what's being referred to. I believe what's being referred to is the book of life, God's book of life, which is kept in heaven, the names of all of the righteous or the redeemed. Now, the problem comes for us, and I can see from the looks of some of your faces that next week I'm going to be offering a clarification of my clarification, most likely. But try and hang with me just for a few more minutes. The problem comes for us when we read in the Old Testament passages that speak of names being blotted out of the book. And that raises for us a question. What is this blotting out? And how does it affect us? And is it possible? Now, there are three ways to answer that question or that dilemma. Let me give them to you. The first is to say that the book of life contains the names of all those people who are saved and that being blotted out refers to losing your salvation. So you can become saved, you can be redeemed, declared righteous, be in that book, have your name written in that book, but you might do something to offend God, some sin, Or you might do something to not persevere through your own faithfulness or your own sin or something that might cause him to blot your name out and thus you lose your salvation. So that you once were saved and now you're no longer saved. Your name was in the book. You were saved, but you were blotted out or removed. And then your name can no longer be written in there again. Some people think that. Now, I don't believe that that's what's being spoken. I don't think that that theory holds any water whatsoever. I do not, I believe that it makes basically a dog's breakfast and a a hash out of all of the other teaching of Scripture which speaks of the security of the believer in Christ. You have to look at the whole context. 
Now, we've talked about eternal security and the security of the redeemed in other parts of the book of Philippians. And I'm not going to rehash all of that this morning, just simply to say it has nothing to do with losing your salvation whatsoever. The second option, first, it refers to someone losing their salvation. The second option is for somebody to say that what the Bible teaches is that at the beginning of time before the creation of the world, God wrote down the names of everyone who would ever live. Everybody's name was in that book. Yours, mine, Hitler, Stalin, uh, Pol Pot, every mass murderer, everybody righteous, unrighteous, everybody who's ever lived, their name was written in the book of life. And that as people died or were born and died without Christ and thus were lost, then their names were blotted out. So that at the end of time, what we are left with is a record of the redeemed, all of the righteous, all of those who's, who were saved. And so everybody's name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, and some are blotted out. The problem with that, and by the way, that's what I was taught at Bible college. I believed that for a period of time. The problem with that is Revelation 17.8 says that those who will worship the beast are those whose names have not been recorded from the foundation of the world in the book of life. Revelation 17, verse 8. So that raises the question, obviously there are people whose names have not been recorded in the book of life since before the foundation of the world. Further, I find it since the, since the book of life is called the book of the righteous, or those whose righteous, those are righteous whose names are written in it, it is a catalog of the righteous, those who have been given the righteousness of Christ and saved, I find it difficult to believe that Spurgeon and Whitfield and Moody and Paul and Peter and John and all the saints of the ages, including you and I, have shared space in that book with Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and every mass murderer and wicked person who's ever lived. I have a hard time believing that or even seeing that in Scripture since there are some whose names are not written in that book from the foundation of the world. The third way of dealing with all of the passages in the Old Testament that have to do with their names being blotted out is to look at each one of those passages in its context and say, what is being spoken of? So let me give you really quickly three of the most significant passages that speak of our names being blotted out of the book of life. Or, sorry, not our names, but names being blotted out of the book of life. The first is Exodus 32:32. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw all the children of Israel, they're doing that. And God says, I'm going to judge them. And then Moses said, Lord, please forgive them. That is, forgive the whole nation of their iniquity. And if you won't forgive them, then blot my name out of the book of life. In other words, Moses was saying, blot me out and forgive them rather than pouring out your wrath on them and showing grace to me. Now, is that possible? Now, in that context, I don't think it's possible for Moses' name to be blotted out. So then what is Moses praying for? I think Moses was expressing the same sacrificial love toward the nation that Paul did when Paul said, I would wish that I myself were estranged from Christ, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren according to the flesh, that is, the Israelites. If only all of them could be saved, I would, I would be willing myself to perish if all of the nation of Israel could be saved. A sacrificial, sacred, agape love that Paul had for all of his kinsmen according to the flesh. I think Moses is saying the same thing that Paul said. It wasn't possible for Paul to be estranged from Christ because at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul said, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. But then in chapter 9, he says, but I would be willing, it's not possible, but I would be willing for myself to be estranged from Christ if it meant the salvation of the nation because that's how much I love those people. I think that's what Moses was praying for. It wasn't possible for God to blot Moses out of the book of life 
Why? His name was written in there for the foundation of the world. It's the chronicle of the righteous. And God is not going to say, okay, I'll damn you, Moses, so that I could save them. It's impossible. It wouldn't happen. So, what was Moses praying? He was simply expressing his sentiment or his desire for God to forgive the nation. The second passage is the imprecatory psalm. Psalm 69, verse 28. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where somebody prays down a curse on the enemies of God or the enemies of God's kingdom. And the psalmist there says in Psalm 69, verse 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life. Speaking of God's enemies, may they be blotted out of the book of life. Now listen to the next phrase. And may their names not be recorded with the righteous. Now what is the psalmist speaking of? In Hebrew poetry, it's not the words that rhyme in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme words. Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas. So keep that in mind as you're going through the psalms and you see a phrase that kind of strikes you as odd, you look at the surrounding context and see what ideas are rhyming here. What does the psalmist mean by being blotted out of the book? He describes it in the very next rhyming phrase, which says, may they not be recorded with the righteous. And all that the psalmist is saying in the context is, Lord, may these enemies of yours not experience any of the covenant blessings that belong to those whose names are recorded in the book of the righteous. He's not saying these people were once saved, they're once righteous, and now, God, I pray that because they're enemies of you and unrighteous, that you would remove their names from the book of life. The psalmist is saying, Lord, may their names not be recorded there. I don't want them experiencing any of the blessings that fall upon the faithful covenant people of God. It has nothing to do with losing salvation. These people, there's nothing in the text that suggests that these people once had their names written there, but now the psalmist is able by a prayer to blot those names out of the book. The third passage is Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Some of you are either totally lost or you're taking notes. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, where in the letter to the church at Smyrna, the Lord says, To him who overcomes, I will give him to be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before the angels and before my Father in heaven. Now, what's being spoken of there is the believer clothed in white garments, name confessed before the Father and before the angels in heaven, the one who perseveres and demonstrates the genuineness of his salvation by overcoming. And Jesus' promise is, I will not erase his name out of the book. That's not a threat. That's a promise. Some people take a promise of security and turn it into a threat of insecurity. I understand how you can do that. It's just the opposite of a threat. It's Jesus saying, Look, in the face of all the persecution, in the face of all the dangers, you have this confidence. I will not take your name out of the book. As he who overcomes, as the one who is a believer in me, as the one who demonstrates the genuineness of his salvation by overcoming all of this, is my promise to you. I'm not going to take your name out. Now somebody looks at that and says, see, Jesus said he's not going to take your name out. Therefore, it's possible for your name to be taken out. Huh? How does that work? That's like reading John 6 where Jesus says, Of all that the Father's given to me, they will come to me and I will not lose any. And then turning around and saying, see, it's possible for him to lose some. How is that possible? The promise is, I will not remove your book, right, your name from the book of life. So, are there three groups of people? No, there are two. Those whose names have been recorded in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world and those names that do not appear there. And the promise of Scripture to the righteous is, if your name is written there, I will not blot it out. I will not remove it. I cannot be removed. Why? Because you're saved. 
And He who chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world and then secured your salvation on the cross and then called you infallibly to Himself and has brought you there and He has saved you and He's declared you righteous and He's forgiven you of all of your sins, past, present, and future, so that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. His promise to you is, no matter what happens, no matter what comes, I will not erase your name from the book of life. So that's my take on the Lamb's book of life. Now, listen. You're sensible people. You're intelligent people. Study this out for yourself. Search the Scriptures to see if these things are true. Look up all the references on your own and examine that issue for yourself. But that's my take on the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, that brings us back, of course, to Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, where the Lamb's Book of Life is mentioned. And Paul references that in reminding the church of Philippi that there were fellow workers and fellow soldiers of his who's in the gospel who had shared his struggle, whose names are recorded in the book of life. And then the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, and because I had to clarify my last week's sermon, that's all the further we're going to get is just verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now, this next paragraph, chapter 4, beginning of verse 4 and going through after verse 8 into verse 9, is filled with a bunch of sort of staccato, brief statements or commands by the Apostle Paul. And it's typical of what you find in Paul, like at the end of the book of Romans, the end of First Thessalonians and other epistles, where he gets to the end of the epistle and he sort of just, no, this and this and this, like a bullet list of things. You see that in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The next sentence, verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. You see the sort of brief bullet point list of things that he's trying to get across? None of them are necessarily related to each other, other than that they're all written to the same group of people. Each one of these commands could stand sort of all by itself, and we could take each one all by itself and take a week on each one of them if we wanted to, which I don't want to, not at this point. Maybe by next week we will, but I don't want to right now. But it's just a brief list sort of of all these injunctions that Paul is giving. And it begins it by saying, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say, rejoice. And the theme of all of this is that of joy and rejoicing. We've noticed throughout the book of Philippians that the subject of joy and rejoicing has come up on more than one occasion. I counted ten times. I just read through the book real quick this last week. Uh, twice in chapter 1, five times in chapter 2, once in chapter 3, twice in chapter 4, the subject of joy or rejoicing comes up. And I may have missed a couple of them. It's a main theme throughout the book of Philippians. We haven't really spent a lot of time talking about joy in depth like we want to this morning. So we're going to do that. What is joy and, and how do I have joy and what is not joy? And I'm not talking about a woman's name. We're talking about a, uh, a deep-seated confidence, which we're going to see in a bit. But you notice that the Apostle Paul repeats it. It's very similar to chapter 3, verse 1. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 1. Look at that. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then chapter 4, verse 1, or chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He's repeating himself. Why does Paul repeat himself? When a speaker or a writer repeats himself, it's usually for one of three reasons. Number one, it's because they've ran out of material. Now, you see, I can always tell a preacher when a preacher runs out of material because he looks at his watch, looks at the clock on the wall. Looks at the congregation, comes up with a really profound look on his face like he's about to say something really profound. And then he launches into something that he's already said about 10 or 15 minutes ago and starts off on that again. Trying to repeat himself because he's got time to fill. And then I quickly realized I wish he would just sit down and be quiet so we could go home and watch football, which would be far more edifying than the mindless ramblings which are about to ensue. 
I used to have a Bible prof actually who would joke about, uh, he said a sermon basically is 30 minutes. For the first 10 minutes, you tell the people what you're going to tell them. For the second 10 minutes, you tell them what you're going to tell them. And the third 10 minutes, you spend telling them what you told them. And that was the joke in preaching class. And a lot of people preach like that. Sometimes you run out of material, you need to fill the time, so you start repeating everything that you just said. So you know that a preacher has run out of material when he starts repeating himself. Second, like I just did, second... A second reason that a preacher, a speaker, or author may repeat themselves is because they've lost their place. In that little note card in their mind or on the desk. And so you know that if I ever start repeating myself, that I probably lost the place up here on the note card that I keep up here. If I ever start repeating myself, that's the reason for it. Or third, he'll repeat himself for emphasis. For emphasis. Emphasis. And Paul has not run out of material. Paul has not lost his place. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing something. He does not want the Philippians to start reading through this and say, Rejoice in the Lord. Okay, okay, get on. Okay, be anxious. He wants them to stop and pause. And you read that twice and you say, Okay, hold on a second. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing something here. He's emphasizing it, I think, for two reasons. Number one, because rejoicing in the Lord and having joy is needful for us as Christians. It's a necessary thing. It's not optional to a strong, vibrant, vital, uh, stable Christian life. Having joy, as the Bible describes it, is something that is needful for us and essential for us. And that's why the Apostle Paul puts so much emphasis on it in Philippians, so much emphasis on it at the beginning of chapter 3, and repeats it twice here in chapter 4. He wants to drive it home to us. Look, rejoicing and joy is not optional for you. If you're going to have a stable, solid, strong Christian life, and a vibrant walk with God, you've got to get the issue of joy settled. Second, he's emphasizing it not only because it is needful, but because it is difficult. It's difficult. Do you find that it's difficult? Let's be honest. There's a lot of things that happen to us in our lives, general elections, that can steal or rob our joy. Right? They can suck it right out of us. And once our focus drops down to our circumstances or the news headlines or your team's losing season or anything else that might contribute to being down and depressed, it can suck all of the joy right out of us. And it's difficult to be joyful. It's easier said than done. Hey, rejoice in the Lord. Walk up to somebody who just lost a loved one. Rejoice in the Lord. Just lost their job. Rejoice in the Lord. You've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Well, rejoice in the Lord. It's a lot easier said than done. It's something we have to be reminded of because it is a very difficult thing. And listen, I don't think it was any less difficult for the Philippians than it is for us. Put yourself in the Philippians' position. Their beloved apostle is in prison. They don't know if they're ever going to see Paul again. In all likelihood, they won't. They're certainly not expecting to see him again. On top of that, we find out in chapter 1 that they were being persecuted by people outside the church who were hostile to them and their message, and they were sharing the same sufferings and affliction that Paul was sharing in prison. And there were people inside the church who were threatening them through false doctrine, through false teaching, and through licentious living. And Paul warns them about them, and with everything pressing in around them, all of the hostility, all of the rejection from friends and family and co-workers, and everything going on, they had every reason in the world not to be joyful. In fact, I would suggest that the Philippians had more reasons to lack joy than I have ever had in my life. More reason than I have ever had in my life. I have had it easy compared to the Philippian Christians when you put yourself in their position. So it's not an easy thing. 
And I don't think that the, anybody in Philippi read this and say, oh, rejoice in the Lord. Got that covered. <laughs> That's a cakewalk. I can do that in my sleep. Be joyful and rejoicing. It's not. So that brings us to the two questions that we see answered in the text. Everything I've said so far is by way of introduction, which you're looking at your watch now and saying, you're kidding me. And the answer is, no, I'm not. Because you're thinking to yourself, if you think that that was ten minutes of you telling us what you're going to tell us, and you still have to tell us what you're going to tell us, and then tell us what you told us, we're in for a long afternoon. But fear not, because like the objects in your mirror, the end of this sermon is nearer than it appears. So rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. The two questions that we have to answer are, number one, what is joy? And number two, where is my joy? What is joy? Let me just make a general observation about joy before I define what it's not and then define what it is. A general observation about joy. Joy is something that you have to cultivate. It should be and can be cultivated. You don't stumble into biblical joy. You don't fall into it. You don't wake up one morning and say, oh, now I'm overcome with joy. Now I know what biblical, true Christian joy is all about. It's not something that just happens to you accidentally. It is something that must be and is and can be cultivated. Now you say, Jim, that's depressing to me because now you've just given me one more thing I've got to work on in my Christian life. I was hoping that if I worked on everything else, that the joy would follow. And now you've just given me one more thing that I've got to agonize over. Now I've got to try and cultivate joy on top of all my other responsibilities. Well, listen, friends, every good thing in your life Every grace in your life, every character quality, anything that you've ever been or done that is good has been the result of effort and cultivation. Whether it is your gentleness, your kindness, your self-control, your honesty, your humility, your service to the Lord, any goodness that you have shown, every spiritual grace is the result of you cultivating it, and joy is no different. It is the product of the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, One of the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. It's among the fruit of the Spirit. But just because it's something that the Spirit produces doesn't mean you don't have to work on it. You do. Love is something the Spirit produces, but it's also something that we're told to do one to another. So we need to cultivate joy as a manner of life and as a discipline and something that we should work on and determine, I'm going to be joyful. It's something we should cultivate. Every spiritual grace that you have You need to cultivate, and joy is no different. So you work at it, understanding that it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's the product of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God produces that in us through our diligent cultivation of joy. Now, what is joy? What is it not? Let me give you what it's not. First of all, joy is not an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's not the bubbly, happy I wake up in the morning and I preach with a grin and I meet everybody with a grin and I got a perfect grin on my face. That's not joy. It's not an emotion. It's not a mountaintop, hilltop experience. It's not something that you necessarily feel all the time. That's not joy. Joy is not the emotion of happiness. We use the term joy in our English language to convey an emotion, don't we? Probably more often than not, we speak of an emotion. But that's not biblical joy. Paul would never say here, hey, I want you to gin up this emotional response in all of life's circumstances. That would just exasperate you, would it not? Because the first moment that you realized that you weren't smiling and joyful, then you would feel guilty and realize, oh, 
Now I have to try and create this emotion. Biblical joy may create an emotion, but it may not. Do you understand that? Don't confuse the emotion for biblical joy. It's not an emotion. It may create the emotion, but joy is something different. Second, biblical joy is not the power of positive thinking and the ability to see the silver lining in all the clouds of life. Somebody's saying to you, hey, life hands you lemons, you make lemonade, right on, hey, just put your smile on and know that the best days are ahead of you and you can live your best life now and you just keep pressing on and keep that grin on and hey, 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 it's all good, rah-rah, let's all go out and conquer the world, hey. It's not that at all. And I'm not trying to be light, oh, I am trying to be a little lighthearted, but I want you to see, it's not just the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale style. That's not joy. Unbelievers can have that. Rank pagans can have that. Atheists can have that. That's not joy. It's not an emotion. It's not the ability to see the silver lining in all of life's difficulties. Third, it's not just laughter. I could get up here and tell you a bunch of jokes and give you some anecdotes and put up on the PowerPoint presentation here a quote from Henry Ford that says you need to be joyful and a quote from Ronald Reagan that says you need to be joyful and a quote from... uh, uh, Charlie Tremendous Jones that says you should laugh at everything in life. And I could tell you a few jokes and get you all laughing and smiling. We could sing our song. We could all get out of here. And then guess what's going to happen on Monday morning? You're going to go to work. You're going to get that note. You're going to get that diagnosis. You're going to have a coworker say something to you. Your kids are going to do something to you this afternoon. What happens to all of your quote-unquote joy? Disappeared. Right out the window. Why? Because you mistake laughter for joy. Friends, you may have biblical joy with tears of sorrow running down your cheeks. Because it's not an emotion. It's not seeing the silver lining in the clouds of life. And it's not just laughter. I could make you laugh and try and keep up some emotional high that you have, but then you walk out of here and that goes right out the door and and you've mistaked an emotion or you've mistaked a positive outlook or you've mistaked laughter for true biblical joy. And it's not any of those. What is joy? Listen to this. Joy... True biblical joy is a deep-seated, a deep-seated confidence and conviction that God is in control for my good and His glory, no matter what the circumstances say. It is a deep-seated confidence and conviction which cannot be shaken that says Christ is on the throne and He is in control And He is working it all out for my good and for His glory. That is biblical joy. How do you cultivate that? It means that when something happens or you get bad news or something terrible happens to you, you don't say, hey, my best days are ahead of me. No. You say, God is in control. He is putting me through this. There is a reason for it. It's for my good. It's for His glory. I can accept this and I can rejoice in Him in the fact that He is sovereign, in the fact that He is in control, and in His good, wise governance of all things in my life. That's biblical joy. It's not an emotion. You see how different that is than an emotion? You can be weeping because of a real loss that has happened in your life and still be rejoicing in Christ. It's not an emotion. And it's not based on circumstances, which is why the Apostle Paul says, Apostle Paul says rejoice always. Not rejoice when good things happen to you. Rejoice when things turn around. Rejoice when you get good news. Rejoice always 
in pain, in suffering, in sickness, in disease, in tragedy, in trials, in afflictions, in temptations, in loss, in everything you rejoice. Why? Because you look at life and you realize my joy is not based upon my circumstances. My joy is based upon my deep-seated conviction that everything that is happening to me and around me is for my good and for His glory, and I can rest confidently in a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. Do you understand what biblical joy is? It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. Now, a feeling may come from that. My deep-seated confidence in God that He's in control and working all things for my good and for His glory may produce in me peace. It might produce in me a certain happiness. It might produce in me a tranquility. It might produce in me a a restfulness and a peace of mind and a peace of soul and a lack of anxiousness. It may produce all of those feelings. It might produce a hundred other feelings in me. A love for Him, a love for my brethren, a love for my circumstances, thankfulness. It might produce all of those emotions that run through our hearts and our minds. But joy is not any of those. Joy is the ability to say, I will be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. If you've ever lost a loved one that you know was a believer and you know now is with the Lord, then you understand the reality that you can be both sad and rejoicing at the same time. You understand that? Don't ever mistake emotion for biblical joy or happiness or laughter. Those things may come, but they're not necessarily, they are not the joy itself. So, Paul says, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. What is joy? It is that deep-seated confidence and conviction that God is in control and He's working all things for my good and for His glory. And it rests in that with contentment. It says, whatever you, Father, from your wise hand of bestowment will send my way, I will accept from you with thankfulness. You can only do that if you believe that God is sovereignly in control of all things. If you do not believe that God is sovereignly in control of all things, then you are going to say, why did God allow that to happen? Why did He stop that? Instead of seeing that this is from His hand. And it's for my good. It's the loving hand of a Father that has brought this to me. Therefore, I will respond to it with contentment, with rest, with thankfulness, knowing that He has sent it. Now, where does our joy come from? It's in the Lord. Notice the number of times that the Apostle Paul says that in verse 1. He says, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. In verse 2, he says, live in harmony in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. You see the pattern developing? It's all in the Lord. That's the point. This is what separates unbiblical, worldly, temporary joy from real biblical joy. Real biblical joy comes in the Lord and to those who are in the Lord... The source is the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It rests on Christ. It comes from Christ. It's rooted and grounded in Christ. It all results from Christ. Worldly joy is the emotion and the laughter and the happiness and the let the good times roll type of approach. Biblical joy is not that. All of the worldly joy is short-lived and fleeting. Why? Because it's not rooted and grounded in Christ and it doesn't come from Christ. But the joy that we rejoice in when we rejoice in the Lord looks to the Lord and says because of who He is, And because of what He has done, I will be thankful and I will rejoice. Because Christ is Christ. And He died on a cross for me. And He rose again. 
And He has forgiven me of all of my sins. And there is no condemnation in Christ. And I am sealed with the Spirit. And He is my rock. He is my defender. He is my protector. He is my guide. He is my shepherd. He is my friend. He is my brother. All of these things are mine. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. My adoption. My redemption. The sealing of the Spirit. Everything is given to me. Spiritual gifts. Nothing is He withheld from me that is good from me. And so I will rejoice in the Lord. Not just rejoicing. Friends, I'm not asking you to just grit your teeth and say, oh, I'm going to grin and bear it. That's not joy. That is the product of the flesh. That is a stoic, bitter resentment against your circumstances and not a trusting in God. That's not rejoicing. We rejoice in the Lord. Now, there's a reason that I think that command comes after verse 3 instead of way back in the epistle. Can you imagine what it might be? Because my name is written in the book of life. I think the words of the Lord Jesus were ringing in Paul's ears when he wrote this. Jesus said in John chapter 10, or sorry, Luke chapter 10, verse 20, don't rejoice in this that the, that the demons are subject to you, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in this that your name is recorded in heaven. I think that's what Paul had in his mind when he wrote this. Your name is in the book of life, therefore rejoice. And you can rejoice always. Why? Because always my name is written there. My failings, my inadequacies, my insecurities, my sins, my weaknesses... The things that I do, the things that happen to me, the coming election, my financial situation, disease, none of those things can change that. For how long will my name be written in that book? How long has it been written in that book? From before the foundation of the world. How long will it be written in that book? Forever and forever and forever and always. Therefore, rejoice always. Why? Knowing that my name is written in that book. And if I know that my name is written in that book and that I'm a citizen of heaven, then I know that like Job I can say, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand in my flesh and I will see God with my own eyes in the new heavens and a new earth. And I can rejoice in any cataclysm that comes my way here knowing that my name is written there. Therefore, I rejoice and I rejoice always. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the reminder that you've given to us again in your word, how needful this is for us, how responsible we are to cultivate this. But Lord, the blessing rests upon those who will indeed have a settled confidence in your goodness and your grace. It's not that we want to be joyful just for the sake of, of being joyful itself, but Lord, we want to, in obedience to you, cultivate this discipline in order that we may see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives that we might respond rightly to you, our loving Heavenly Father, who by your providence and your wisdom graciously gives to us not more than we can bear, but everything that we need. And we bow before you now, the King of Heaven, and ask that you would work this grace in our hearts in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.